We all know that parenting is hard. So how do parents with disabilities do it? With creativity and because we know of the value of interdependence. Come hear about ways experts say we can best empower these families and let's all learn about how parenting can be done differently. I'm your host, Marjorie Onos, and today my guest is Beth Tarleton. Beth has done incredible work to support parents with an intellectual disability through empowering social workers and professionals who work with them. She values a collaborative approach and is convinced teamwork is how we can best support families. We started our conversation with Beth talking about a publication called the Good Practice Guidance that she developed with some of her colleagues. Enjoy. And don't forget, for more information about where to find the full recording and additional resources, check out the show notes. So this came out in August 2006. And it basically was a survey of all the different services around the country that were working with parents. And then we did follow-up interviews um, to to seek out the good practice and also went to visit some case study areas when we talked to the parents. So it was basically looking for what the issues are and, and got those written down clearly, but also the positive practices. For me, it's always about finding the positive practice and moving things forward. We've got mm-hmm. loads written about what's going wrong. We need we need a lot more about what's going right. Um, so So that was published as a report by the Bayern Foundation. It's still on our network webpage. It's quite old, obviously, now, but I think all the things in it are still completely relevant. The, it, lots of the issues are still the same. Lots of the positive practice, but the positive practice is, remains the same because it's all about understanding parents and their support needs and providing the right support to help them be the best parents they can. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us... Can you tell us a little bit like more specifically what it said, like in terms of what was the the situation in those services and what you saw that was positive? Um, I suppose in the services that were doing brilliant things, um, there was normally a worker who'd seen um, the situation for parents go wrong and normally had seen children removed when they thought they shouldn't have been, if they'd been given better support. And that kind of motivated those workers to set up new services or parents groups. And we found that all the time in the intervening years in the network, um, that people are motivated by seeing something go wrong. And basically in those areas, they were just working in a person-centered way with parents and adapting things and making things easier and getting advocates involved. As far back as then, there were a couple of areas that had a protocol and sort of care pathway established. All the stuff we're still talking about now was kind of in that report. And and I don't, that sounds a bit big headed, but it's kind of not much. Things are coming out with different versions of it, but the basics were sort of there. And and we talked about um, parenting with support as an idea which sort of hasn't taken off greatly uh, but I I still talk about it every now and again Um, but it is the same as what they talk about in America as parental support or supported parenting just the idea that parents can need support possibly ongoing 
long term to be the best parents they can and we ought to provide that and all our childcare policy and everything says that we need to provide support to vulnerable parents or parents who need support so it just seemed to be um the right sort of words to use and Slight, this may be quite a bit controversial, but I'll say it anyway. Um, in England, um, we have the term supported parenting from the booths, the brilliant booths who set, the, set everything going in England. But during my time in talking to people during the, finding the right support, and particularly when I was trying to disseminate it to children's social workers, they said, oh, children's social workers said, we don't go with supported parenting because it only talks about the parents' needs, not the children's. And I got that from quite a few children's social workers, and I'm sure that's not what the booths meant at all, but it is what children's social workers had taken from the snippets they'd heard, because I'm sure the children's social workers probably hadn't read most of the booth stuff. They just had the highlights at conferences or somewhere, and that was what they said. They said we don't engage with booth stuff. So we took a deep breath and decided to use a different term and called it parenting with support, which also put the parent first in the way that is liked by people with learning difficulties or learning disabilities in this country. Um, so it so it's per, the person first, but it was quite a, it felt like a departure at the time from Mm-hmm. what the booths had done before. And interestingly, Scotland, who we worked really closely with, decided to stick with supported parenting. Interesting. And lots of their policy doc or their policy documents and their good practice guidance document is called supported parenting. Okay. So we've got a thing, a little difference going on. Yeah. But I think England and Scotland usually do, right? Have <laughs> yeah, a they do have a little difference the going on. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned a couple of things here. Uh, first, the, the good practice guidance, which I, I would like for, for you to talk and expand on, um, but also sort of what is supported parenting or what is parents with support? So if you could sort of talk about the two and maybe they are linked together, which I believe they are. Uh, what that is and what it looks like concretely. Oh, well, the good practice guidance um, was written in 2007 in England and it was um, written by an activist called Jenny, a disabled activist called Jenny Morris, who was employed by the government at the time and who we knew quite well. And the good practice guidance used lots of themes from finding the right support in it and and quite and quite a lot of the examples good practice guidance got put into the good practice guidance um so it is there but it's not it's guidance but not at a statutory level so it's the sort of guidance that should be used but nobody can tell you off if you don't um use it um and so the government wrote this but it didn't really disseminate it in any great way he didn't say it, they didn't say to children's services you must use this guidance it's the way it is now they just sort of put it out there and left it to us to disseminate um but since then we've we uh, the working together with parents network um and nadine who is our policy officer nadine tilbury has updated the policy sections of the guidance a couple of times um because every few years it gets out of date 
So she keeps updating the policy guidance. And so we had the latest one last year. Um, so the content's exactly the same, um, just different links and different policy references. Um, and Nadine worked really hard um, to engage with the family court and the president of the family division. And she got the president of the family division to endorse the good practice guidance. Ooh, three or four years ago. And so judges and lawyers and are aware of the good practice guidance and it gets talked about in court. So even though the government hasn't backed it, the family court is backing it. Um, so it gets talked about in court because judges have been made aware of it. So that's quite a good thing. Um, but this is probably a diversion for this podcast, but they've, but the family court has come back with another way of trying to stop parents getting the support um, by talking about something called substituted parenting. So if parents are given a lot of support, then they're arguing that um, parents won't be parenting the support workers will, so they should still take the children away. So that's the current battle. So we've moved on from courts, judges being aware of it, well, uh, mostly, to the counterbalance from within the court that if parents get too much support, that's bad, which is a very odd logic, but it's the logic that's being argued back. Right. And I think, you know, it's it's interesting that you mentioned, because um, I think it's pretty much everywhere uh, in all the countries that we know anyways, where there's like this constant sort of back and forth in terms of what should we do and how it's seen or perceived in terms of support for parents uh, with intellectual disability. And one thing that I think is often forgotten is that when children are young, you know, there might be a need for, for intensive support, but as they grow older, you know, that support is not necessarily uh, needed at the same extent. You know, it's a different kind of support. So it's not like we're supporting, but nothing happens. It's just that the, the children are growing older and the needs are different. And so we need to adapt and adjust the support that we offer. Yeah, that's basically what Parenting with Support said. I think it said about um, creating a empowering parents to speak up for themselves, empowering local services that they could so that they could work with anybody so that they had local services knew how to work with parents with learning difficulties and providing parents with tailored support. So that's kind of what it was. And that would take into account that children grow up and have different needs and need, I don't know, parents need help with understanding the internet and internet safety when they get older rather than baby gates. So, that's right. Yeah, and I think the idea was also that the support could be ongoing or as required. Yes, I think it's it's fascinating. It's definitely something uh, that's very common to all of our countries. So there was an, a third um, document that you submitted for, for this talk that's called Crossing No Man's Land. First of all, I'm really interested in knowing like why this title, because it's like so compelling. Um, and then what's the paper about? Okay, well, this paper was an evaluation of a specialist um, support service in an area of England near London called Medway. And it was a service that was set up by a wonderful woman 
called Rosie, who was a background, who had a background in working with people with learning difficulties and being a health visitor. I don't know how she managed to get that background, but she did. And she set up the specialist service um, and she had support workers who worked with parents in a really intense way. Um, and they wanted an evaluation to just to see about its usefulness basically um and whether the whether the local authority should keep on paying for this quite expensive service um so the project was started by a colleague sue porter and it was basically an evaluation so we did some focus groups with parents um, we did interviews and focus group with staff who worked on the service and other staff who were engaged with the service um and we got an expert social work researcher in to do case file analysis and to evaluate the impact of the services on the outcomes for children and there was also a cost benefit element so we tried to look at all of it and um, basically it was fascinating in lots of ways but one of the key things that I remember is that even though we had two focus groups with parents and that was for parents who had who'd kept their children and another focus group for parents who have still had their children removed from their care, even though they have support from the service. And those parents still thought the service was brilliant, even though they'd had their children removed, because they understood what was going on, what the issues were, and why the children had been removed. And they also said, um, really... <sighs> difficult things about how they'd been suicidal and what bridge they were going to jump off, but how the services had supported them through that and helped them to come out the other side. So it was it was just really powerful. I remember Sue and I being in a focus group just like, wow. And they came along, even though their children had been removed, to tell us how good this service was. So it just showed, and it was because of the the relationships they had with the professionals there and how they cared for them and how they'd explained and how they knew what was going on, even though it wasn't the best outcome for them. And it was all about the individual relationship with those workers and how they'd engaged with them and advocated for them and explained everything to them, even though it didn't work out in the end. Wow. That is pretty powerful. And... um I remember reading the the article and I remember you presenting, you know, and um, you talking about it right now is just like even more powerful in, in recounting sort of the despair that these parents uh, face. And sometimes we, well, actually often we don't even talk about this. And I know um, soon I'll be talking to Rachel Mays who like talked about the grief and loss um, of parents when they, they lost custody of their children and how, you know, that piece is often not talked about and services are not offered. So we remove children, but we don't help and support the parents in understanding why, but also in rebuilding, I guess, their lives um, without their children in their care. And that's not, I think, great practice. One of the mums involved with this service was on her seventh pregnancy and she'd had all the all of them removed but she said it was the first time she understood what the problems were a seventh pregnancy I just like um, and we did follow up 
a, a year a while afterwards and she did have the seventh baby removed but they she tried she'd moved away from the area she was in she engaged with anger management services and all the rest of it but it was felt that she really enjoyed the pregnancy bit and the attention from services and when it came to having actually having a baby then that didn't go so well but she felt she knew and that always sticks in my head that there were seven babies who had to be moved and adoption doesn't always work out is good for some people doesn't work out the best for others and this and the amount of time and money spent on that mum when if somebody had explained it after the first one it could have been all so different and with the right support she might have managed to look after the first one but by the time she'd got to seven so yes yeah, so it was oh, yeah. yeah i just will never forget never, yeah. never forget her it's just like it was just what a waste it took to the seventh baby of the system going round the same loop of we remove the baby but we don't we don't intervene and teach the mum or work with the mum or anything so it all just keeps happening again yeah yeah do you think that's why you um you continued in this field because it's a pretty hard field to to work in uh, at times so do you think like those stories because you seem very inhabited by those stories yeah when you talk about I it i think it was just the age when i started on it um just having children myself because I suppose I hadn't even thought then that somebody can come along and tell you it's all you're doing it completely wrong and can remove your children and that sounds really naive but most people don't live with that fear do they that everyday fear whereas these mums and dads just do and they get scared to tell anyone they've got any problems because they think it get used against them So yeah, the, the other thing about this service, to try and remember to tell you, is that the case file analysis indicated that with support, um, ongoing support from the services, the outcomes for the children were far better than the children that had been removed. It was the first evidence, I think, of the impact of support and how it can be good and how it can work. Yeah. And can you describe a bit what they were offering as a support? Like, what did it look like? It looked like a support worker who got to know the parent really well and tackled the issues the face they were facing with them and were really blunt with the parents about what they needed to sort out. And and said thing I think said things along the lines of, "You need to sort your house out and get the dog out of the kitchen and clean up." or your house will be unsafe for children or you need to get the dog in the garden but actually then rolled up their sleeves and did it with them and showed them how to do whatever was needed in the house the pa- parents said they were really blunt and rude well not rude but really really like direct about what was happening and really direct about the concerns about their children so the parents knew but they also knew they had the support of the workers to sort it out right So it's interesting because what what you're what's coming out to me anyways is this sort of um a mix or a right balance in one worker of someone who is very caring or believing in the strength or the capacity of the parent yet is sort of like keeping them accountable and saying like these are the things you need to work on 
And until you've worked on those elements, your children won't be safe in your care. And so, but in the same time, what I'm hearing is that it's not also someone who um, stays behind a desk or just like gives a couple of phone calls. It's actually somebody who's going to show um, show them and not assume that because they've said clean the kitchen that the parents understood what clean the kitchen is because there's a lot of like values also in terms of like those elements right yeah oh yeah uh, just the other thing to say was that these workers were still they were respected by children's services and the other services as well they knew that if there was a big issue that needed reporting they would report it so there, it wasn't the myth of because workers are supporting the adult, they didn't care about the children. The other workers from other services were clear that they knew that if there was an issue, they would report it. And so some of them had closed cases earlier than they would have because they knew that the service was holding that balance of supporting the parents, but the best, but for the best outcomes of the children. So that's yes. what you need. Because it's always still about the outcomes for the children and what's best for the children. But it's about supporting parents to get to get there. Yeah. yeah. I think that's also very striking or definitely a, a, an element that comes out in everything that you've done in terms of your work. The element of collaboration and the element of like working with uh, childcare workers. So... Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I know we, you didn't submit a particular document about it, but I know that this is, you know, often where our discussions go uh, when you and I talk about sort of like we need to support workers and we need to make sure that we collaborate. You know, it's it's not one against the other, basically. So do you want to chat about that? Yeah, um, I guess my feeling is and what I've come to learn is that there isn't much training around working with parents with learning difficulties, um, particularly for children's social workers. They don't get an input and they end up working with these parents when there's a big crisis going on. Somebody is very generally, generally concerned about um, the welfare of children. And so they're sort of stuck without support, without an understanding of how to work with these parents. And it's all very difficult. And I think you need to just have compassion for workers who end up in this situation without the right training and support. So it's just really important that we get the services together, like adult services and learning difficulty services together to support children's services and work out a plan between them. And it's about sharing the skills and knowledge that professionals need and making children's services workers aware that they can do different types of ongoing support to make sure that issues don't increase and whenever possible to keep the child at home so you need to give people the knowledge and skills to be able to do that and connect them up with other services and community resources or help them find family members to help out so that parents have got the best shot i just think saying all the time these services aren't working right and making feel people feel criticized doesn't help you share positive practice so i try and avoid that i try and say look this is the way you we can do it. And so lots of the recent projects have been trying to find positive practice and sharing it. And that's what the Working Together with Parents Network is about. Sharing, people can ask questions and somebody else will come in and give an answer. Or when we used to have events, it all used to be about positive ways of doing it and services talking about how they did it. So yeah, it's just sharing the positive, really. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about the network and how that came about and what it is? Um, oh, the network came out of the first study and we did find in the right support and the Bearing Foundation kind of looked at us with the findings and said, well, we need to do something to help the field. And they said, we're going to set up a network. So they put out a tender for an organisation to run a network. And we tendered for that and we set up the Working Together with Parents Network. And originally it was a partnership between England, Scotland and Wales and an organisation in um, Leeds called Change, which is led by disabled people and has done lots of campaigning around parents' support needs. And so that was 2006, 2007. So now we've got a network of about 900 people on the mailing list. Wow. 900 and something. Um, and... We share positive practice. There's a website. Before the pandemic, we did regular events sharing positive practice um, around the country and had read nor groups. At the moment, we've sort of run out of funding, so it's just really the email network. Nadine, who's the policy officer, Nadine Tilbury, does lots of policy work, so that's her main focus at the moment, is to try and keep people being aware of the good practice guidance and challenging things like the substituted parenting thing. So she's actually running a project about substituted parenting at the moment to work out where this term's come from, how it's been used in court and to try and get some guidance written about it. This term has arrived and nobody knows where it's come from or, or what legal basis there is, it's just being used. So her main focus at the moment is trying to tackle that through a research project. You know, you talk about funding and funding is definitely something that we all struggle with, I guess. And it's a bit sad to me that I hear when I hear like those beautiful projects, like the working together network that due to lack of funding may sort of lose like its steam a little bit. And in Australia, it was Healthy Start that lost the funding and that stopped when it was clearly a best practice and seen and perceived as the best practice by researchers throughout the world, right? We were all looking at them. We were all sort of using their resources And then, you know, it lost the funding. And so it's it's a bit sad that we know what is needed for services to work, you know, better, more efficiently, to be more supportive for families, yet we're not investing um, in that money. But it's fascinating, again, like how it works. If we go in terms of looking towards the future, What do you think is needed or what? where should the field go or where would your research go um, for the future? So research-wise, at the moment, we're doing the study on substituted parenting because I think that's really unclear and a big risk to families. And part of the project is trying to explain this term to parents and getting their response to it. Not a positive response to the term substituted parenting, um, but also trying to work out how we can explain that term properly to parents so they can be aware of it. And when they're engaging with support workers, making help, being helped to keep control of the support so that they're seen as parenting. So I think that's really important that if we, there is a risk that somebody's going to say, you've got too much support, you're not doing it yourself. Parents have to know the risk and have strategies to avoid that. Um, so we're doing some focus groups with parents and going to make a video for parents about this risk with a brilliant, brilliant uh, theatre company called Mind the Gap. 
that has already done quite a few um, plays about parents with learning difficulties. Um, so that's that. So that's a big thing. And the other project we're doing um, is looking at how adults and learning disability services actually engage with parents with learning difficulties. Because you'd think it was obvious that learning disability services would get engaged with them. But lots of the parents haven't got a diagnosed learning disability. They've got a milder impairment or a le- or what we might call a learning difficulty. Um, so they often don't get support from learning disability services. So they should be able to access support from the generic adult services under the CARE Act. But nobody has any clue if adult services actually engage and ha- or how they do. So we're doing a project about that because actually if adult services or learning disability services could engage with parents earlier then they'd have the might have ongoing support and then it might not it might mean that there isn't a big crisis and they don't have to be involved with children's services or if children or if families are involved with children's services there could be far more positive engagement with the adult services social workers other people that get involved with them and they shouldn't and it shouldn't have to be like that so we're trying to work out how adults and learning disability services could So hopefully that would give advice to services on how they can engage with parents and how the other services can be more supportive. I think we've needed to know what's been going wrong, but I think we know now. We've been hearing similar things about what's been going wrong for a very long time. I think we need to move forward and work out the best models of providing that ongoing support we need positive support was related to the attitudes the workers had which is obvious really about the meanings they held about parents with learning difficulties and so it's trying to help change people's meanings and understandings and say look if you understand that a parent can work well with support and they love their kids they just don't understand some things or some things need to be compensated for as our our Swedish colleagues say which is brilliant then then you can. If you've got that attitude, then you can most likely make it work. If you've got a negative attitude, then it's not going to work. You're going to look for the negative things like that parents say that are looked for all the time. So I think it's about research that enables people to grow and move forward and understand that these parents can can be good parents and and have got the right to be a good parent and have the right to support just to move it on to a more positive place and to argue that the Human Rights Act or whatever laws in whatever country supports that. So my last one question, if you could talk to childcare workers right now, what is the one thing you would like to tell them? Um, I think the first thing would be, it's not your fault, you're stuck in a dodgy system that doesn't allow you to often work in a positive way as positive way as you'd like to because all the children's social workers I've met generally they they're sort of stuck they're like well they've got so many weeks to do an assessment and they have to prove that parents have changed or whatever the system's not set up for them to do positive work in so I'd say it's not your fault thank you for trying this is how you could do it talk to adult services make sure you've got parents have got an advocate Get your legal department to look at the rules because you can have longer for assessments and things because parents are classified as disabled. I think it's about recognising that children's social workers are sort of stuck in our crisis intervention short-term system 
And so often they feel like they can't do much, but how to get past that and how to work with the other services and how to learn how to work with parents, as long as they've got a positive attitude, then that's all you can ask for. I love your answer because, you know, you used the word compassion earlier. And I think that's what we need more and more. Uh, unfortunately, our systems are breaking down on certain levels and it is hard, very hard for workers to uh, to work within that system and within those those rules that are given. The right support is sometimes as easy as sort of asking for help from a different agency or from a different sort of worker um, to be able to support, you know, on different levels. And um, for that, I thank you because I think it's, you just gave a little bit of um, a, a light at the end of the tunnel by sort of showing how simple sometimes support and collaboration can happen. So I thank you for that. And I thank you for, for talking with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.